friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. like us to take a look at the Gospel of John chapter 5, and we will be reading together verses 1 to 17. I'm going to pull back here for a while. I'd like all of us to read John chapter 5, 1 to 17, all together at the count of three. All right, here we go. One, two, read. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, this is going to be a two-part series. We're not going to tackle everything. We're going to tackle the first part and do the second part next Sunday. Let's come before the Lord in a word of prayer as we seek the blessing of God in our midst. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for reminding us of your resurrection, which happened more than 2,000 years ago. And Lord, while we rejoice at the cross, we also rejoice in the empty tomb. Because without the empty tomb, there is no proof that Jesus has paid for all of our sins. But since he rose from the dead, we have this assurance 
that every single one of our sins have been paid for. And for that, we are eternally grateful. And we ask, O God, for your blessing upon us this morning. Lord, allow us to celebrate in our hearts the resurrection of Jesus, but not only the resurrection of Jesus, allow us to celebrate the person of Jesus. And to this end, we ask for the visitation of the Holy Spirit upon each and every heart and upon each and every mind that we might understand your will for each one of us. I humbly pray, O Father, that you might anoint my lips of clay, for you know that apart from you, I cannot speak with your wisdom. And so I pray, Father, that you might provide me the unction, the boldness, the courage to be able to preach as I should, May you empower me with your Holy Spirit that people might know that you have spoken in our midst, O God. And whatever will be achieved this morning, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, Hero or Villain? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done something good in your life or something good to other people, and yet you were misunderstood? And instead of being called a hero, you were rather called a villain. Now, in the story that we will be talking about in this narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will see that the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of being hailed as a hero, was persecuted as a villain. And that, of course, is quite unfortunate. And as we go through the story, we will see that wrong perceptions, because of wrong beliefs, actually produces a conflict not only between man and man, but it likewise produces a conflict between man and God himself. And the result of that, ultimately, is the damnation of the souls of men. In this particular story, we will see that the Jews had misunderstood the Sabbath. Actually, they had misunderstood a lot of things, They had misinterpreted the scriptures. Uh, Many of the Jews, many of the rabbis of that time were called the experts of the law. But unfortunately, they had misinterpreted a lot of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, not only did they misunderstand the Sabbath, they also misunderstood the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the lesson here is that it is only in the proper understanding of God and His Word that all issues, all conflicts could be resolved. But let me just add that the Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
If people are going to arrive at the truth, it is because they have the right heart. I like what uh, Sister Karen shared this morning about St. Augustine who said something like this. I don't know if I can quote it verbatim. But he said something like this, the goal is to achieve the health, the spiritual health of our heart so that the eyes of our heart can see God. And I like that. The ones whose hearts are right will understand, but the ones whose hearts are stubborn and hardened will not be able to understand. You and I need to reflect on the fact that it is not intelligence that will make us understand the Scriptures. Some people think that because they are educated, because they are intelligent, because they have the skills, they can properly interpret Scripture. Allow me to remind you that all throughout church history, we find a lot of heretics. And majority of those heretics that we find all throughout church history were actually brilliant men. They were very, very intelligent. And yet the intriguing thing is that in spite of their intelligence, they did not arrive at truth. They were not able to recognize Jesus for who He really is. In fact, some of them have fallen short in their understanding of Christ as a God. Some of them merely saw Him as a man. And again, that tells you it is not enough for you to have intelligence. The most important thing to God is the heart. And that is why the fear of the Lord that is found in our hearts is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be able to understand who God is, if you want to be able to properly interpret Scripture, not only do you need skills to interpret the Bible, you need to have the right heart. Because only then will Christ and the Holy Spirit reveal themselves to us. Only then will God reveal Himself to us. The misunderstanding and unbelief among the Jews on the person and the work of Christ is actually in stark contrast with the Samaritan woman who came to faith and the faith as well of this Roman royal official in chapter 4. And that is why before we go to John chapter 5, allow me first of all to share to you the context. In John chapter 4, we find the Lord Jesus Christ approaching a Samaritan woman. Now, Jesus did something very radical. One, because he was approaching somebody who was a half-breed. Many of the full-blooded Jews actually despised the Samaritans for being half-breeds. In fact, those who were Orthodox Jews refused to even walk the streets of Samaria. 
they felt that they would be infected by the disease of the Samaritans. And that is why for Jesus to approach a woman and a Samaritan at that, and this woman, by the way, was an immoral woman, was really something very radical. But this woman came to faith. She came to saving faith in Christ. And she shared abroad the news about this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And right, there, right after that scenario, the Lord Jesus Christ meets a Roman official. Quite possibly, this, this official was probably a Gentile as well. And this official came to saving faith as well. So if we take a look at the Gospel of John chapter 4, it talks about the faith of this Samaritan woman and the faith of this royal Roman official. And yet what we discover in the Gospel of John chapter 5 is the unbelief of the Jews. So really what we discover here is an indictment. John chapter 5 is actually an indictment of their sinful unbelief. As John shows to us that even with great signs and wonders, the Jews would refuse to believe still. Now, of course, we are celebrating Resurrection Sunday. And I believe there is no miracle in the entire world that is greater than the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Satan can actually counterfeit some of the miracles of God. But if there is something that Satan cannot duplicate, he cannot duplicate the resurrection. It is something that only God himself can perform. And the Lord Jesus rose from the dead and stayed in Jerusalem in the environments of Israel for about 40 days. He did not immediately ascend after his resurrection, but he lingered on for about 40 days. More than 500 people actually witnessed his post-resurrection appearances. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, the resurrection indeed had taken place. But even with such a powerful miracle, the Jews still refused to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, what they wanted to do was to fabricate a story that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb where he was laid. And that is the reason for the empty tomb. That, of course, was a lie. And they, tr they tried to spread that lie far and wide. But then again, they could not debunk the reality of the resurrection. And up to today, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is still being preached. So it is rather unfortunate that we find here in this story the hardness of the heart of the Jews. And that's the reason why they have suffered for very long because they had rejected their very own Messiah. 
And we will be looking into this narrative today. Hopefully, we will glean some lessons which will help us learn how to have the right heart that we might understand who our Jesus really is. So let's take a look at the occasion of the conflict. What was the occasion for the conflict? Let's read verses 1 to 5 right now. In verses 1 to 5, we find the needy in Jerusalem and their hope for deliverance. Allow me to read this. It says, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, let's try to break down the parts of this particular passage and try to learn a few things. One of the things we learn is that Jesus went up during a Jewish festival. And the location of where he went was a pool. It was actually a legendary pool. It was a pool known for miracles of healing. And the story goes that an angel of the Lord would come to that pool, stir up the water, and the first one who would dip himself into that water would be healed. Now, the fact that there were multitudes, we're not just talking about a few hundreds here or maybe just even a few thousands. We're talking about a multitude of people who were in that pool. And obviously, these miracles that had happened in the past were authentic. And as a result of that, the people actually went into that place. They inundated that place with their presence in the hope that they themselves would likewise be healed. So we have here a mass of people, all of them desperate, all of them hoping for healing to take place. And so that is what we find here, a multitude of invalids continually pouring into the place to receive healing. Now, that's the macro perspective of the scenario. Now let's begin to zoom in and try to find out one situation of a sufferer. And we will discover the hopelessness and desperation of the sufferer in verses 5 to 7. So let's read. It says, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, I'd like to be able to describe to you the desperation of this man's situation. 
the Bible first of all declares to us that this man had been ill for 38 long years. Now, we are not told specifically what this illness was, but we can assume that this was some form of paralysis. This was some form of paralysis that this man had experienced. And my imagination here is that this man must have been camping in that place for a long, long time. If he had been sick for 38 long years, I think it would not be wrong to assume that the possibility was that on certain seasons, he was found there maybe for a number of years. And the sad thing is that we are told that he was alone. Nobody was helping him out. So you could just imagine the kind of desperation that this man was experiencing. And probably he he positioned himself very near the edge of the pool, hoping that he could just push himself into the pool of water. But he was never too quick to beat the others into the pool. He was always late. And that is why he was in a desperate situation. But then again, his hope was there that somehow he might be able to receive healing. And so this was the desperate situation of this man. I'd like to focus here on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are introduced to the multitudes. We are introduced to this sufferer. And then we find Jesus in the scene where this man was. And I'd like you to take note a few things here. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, there are two powerful things I see here. First of all, Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time. Now, what does this tell us about our Lord and Savior? This tells us that our Savior has an intimate knowledge of our lives. God knows everything about us. He knows our hurts. He knows our pains. He knows our afflictions. He knows the trials we are going through. He knows if you and I are desperate. He knows when you and I are depressed. He knows everything. And it is an intimate kind of knowledge. It is not an impersonal kind of knowledge wherein He does not care at all. God cares for all of us. It is an intimate knowledge that God has. Now, some of you might ask, if God knows what I am going through, if God knows my pains, my hurts, if God knows my afflictions, why isn't He doing anything about it? Perhaps the question that we are asking right now is, why didn't God heal this man? He has been sick. For 38 long years, why did Jesus have to wait that long for this man to receive healing? And here is where you and I see that we have this 
tendency to prejudge God and to prejudge His dealings with men. Whatever it is that God is allowing in our lives, we need to trust His infinite wisdom. As the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, lean not on your own understanding, but put your trust in the Lord. If there is one thing we are sure of, God was dealing with the soul of this man. And later on in part two of our study, you and I will recognize what it is God was dealing with in this man's life. So if ever you are going through something in your life right now and you're desperate and you're thinking, Lord, why aren't you doing anything about it? Again, let me tell you, you need to trust the wisdom of God and you need to be asking God, Lord, what are you trying to do? What is it that you are teaching me at this time in my life? Are you trying to stretch my faith? Are you trying to increase my patience? Are you trying to form my character? Maybe. We don't really know. Or is it possible that there is a sin that God wants you to repent of and you have not been listening to His voice? You have not been paying attention to the chastisement of God in your life. Could it be that God is dealing with your soul so that as you confess, as you repent, He might be able to restore you back into your proper place? Again, friends, here is where we need to trust the wisdom of God. But one thing we are sure, God has an intimate knowledge of each and every one of us. And the second thing I'd like to share here is the fact that Jesus said to him, do you wish to get well? What do we see here? Well, we see that God is actually willing to alleviate us from all our afflictions and desperate situations. He is willing. We are not to see God as a stingy God. We are not to see God as unwilling to help us out. God is a good God. God is our helper. He is our deliverer. He is our healer. He is our provider. He is a generous God. So God indeed is a willing God. Jesus is a willing Savior. And that's how we need to view God. We must not allow other voices to, to poison our minds about who our God is. Again, let me point you back to the fact that if ever we have afflictions that seem to be prolonged, God is still trying to achieve something good in your life. But you know, if we will talk about stories of how God has delivered us, I'm sure that we will find a thousand stories here. We just came from our congregational prayer and fasting, and one of the things that I asked them to do was to join groups of five. And what I wanted them to do was to share about what God had done. And there were very, very many powerful stories that I heard and the Lord had ministered to these people. God healed them instantly. 
And my heart is just filled with, with joy that these people had experienced a miracle. Sister Teddy was talking to my wife. Uh, she, I think she had pain on her left foot. And the Lord gave me a word of knowledge that somebody had pain on the left foot and the Lord healed her. Brother Roy, our sound technician, was having pain, I think, in his right foot. And again, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge that somebody had pain in that part of the body. He also got healed instantly. There was another man, 73 years old, who could hardly walk up the stairs. And uh, he was having difficulty. And again, the Lord gave me a word of knowledge about that man, and he also got healed instantly. And I was so thankful to God for that because God was serving a lot of people. He was showing his heart to these people. That is what I was rejoicing in. I was rejoicing in the fact that God was serving people. God was just loving people by healing them and performing miracles. And that is the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is willing to deliver us. And this is what we believers have experienced in our lives as well. One of the favorite verses I always referred to would be Psalm 34, verse 19. And it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now let me share something very important here. I've heard so many, many preachers who say that if you are a Christian, you are not supposed to suffer. Suffering is not part of the Christian life. And whenever I hear that kind of a preaching, I ask myself, what kind of Bible are these preachers using? Because my Bible does not say that. My Bible does not say that if you are a believer, you are a Christian, you're not supposed to suffer. In fact, on the contrary, here's what Psalm 34 verse 19 says. It says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's what it says here. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, in this world, you shall have many tribulations. Unfortunately, some Christians are living in a world of fantasy. It's not a real world. That's not the world that Jesus was talking about because the world that Jesus was talking about, he said, will have many tribulations. And once again here, it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Let us not deny the fact that in this life, we will have seasons of suffering. Let us not deny the fact that in this life, we will have seasons of affliction. But even with that reality, here is our comfort and our assurance. The Bible says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Amen? God delivers us not just in some of our afflictions, but He delivers us out of all our afflictions. Not some, 
but all of our afflictions. Now, shouldn't that comfort our hearts and give us the assurance that our God cares for us? Amen? Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. Having noted that, however, I'd like to be able to explain to you that there are two ways wherein God delivers us. It's not just one way wherein God delivers us. There are actually two ways. The first way wherein God delivers us, and probably this is what we really like, if we were given a preference, we would like this kind of deliverance. I'm talking about external deliverance. Sometimes God delivers us externally, and here we find God removing our afflictions either literally or physically. And many of us would like to have that. We want our problems removed. We want our afflictions removed. We want our diseases removed. And let me say that God is able. He is able to do that. He can instantly terminate whatever problems we have. But even then, we have to recognize that there are times that the deliverance that God grants to us is not external. Sometimes God delivers us internally. And by that, I mean He gives us the inner strength and the inner power to go through the problem. There is no one way wherein God deals with us. For example, in the case of Peter, when Jesus asked him to walk on water, what happened? Well, Peter was able to walk on water. But in the case of Paul, when there was a storm that struck the ship, Paul had to swim ashore. Paul did not complain at all to God and say, God, how is it that you caused Peter to walk on water and I had to swim all the way? Now, friends, we cannot complain. God delivers us in so many different ways and we can categorize them into external and internal deliverance. The whole point is this. It doesn't really matter whether the deliverance of God is external or internal. The point is our God will deliver us. Amen? That is our assurance. And let me give you an example from Scripture wherein Paul himself experienced both. He experienced inner deliverance, and he also experienced external deliverance. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, this is what it says. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. We're talking about internal deliverance here. So that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And then he goes, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. Now, I don't think this was really literal. This must have been figurative. But here is an example of an external deliverance. So you have internal deliverance on one hand and external deliverance in the next. Then Paul continues on, and this is the faith that he has. He goes, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. 
And he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so praise be to God for this. And not only Paul can claim this, we too can say this like Paul, that the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and he will bring us safely home. Amen? We are assured of this. Hallelujah. So we go back to the desperate situation of this man who had been ill for 38 long years. He had been camping out in the pool maybe for a number of years as well. The problem was he was alone. Nobody cared for him. Isn't that interesting? No relative, no friend. Nobody was there for him. He was all by himself. And why that was so, we can only guess. We can only speculate. But he was alone. As we mentioned, he was not quick enough to push himself into the water. And so he had been dreaming about this for a long, long time, for a number of years. And yet nothing was happening. But you know, he got an answer, an answer that was better than he expected. And we find that answer found in verses 8 and 9. It says, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Just try to imagine this scenario. And I think there were others who probably recognized this man because there were others who were in a similar situation. They were also camping out in that place hoping that they could get healed. And all of a sudden, this stupendous, powerful miracle takes place. This man who was paralyzed all of a sudden stood up and he started to walk. He took up his pallet. And he started to walk. I mean, this was really a very powerful miracle. The sufferer gets more than he had hoped for as he gets the healing from Jesus himself. This was really amazing. I could just imagine the feeling of this man, the awe that he must have felt because he probably had forgotten how it is to be a walking man. He probably even had very faint memories. He could only imagine himself walking, but this time, all of a sudden, God provided strength for his legs and he started to walk. That is who our Jesus is. Jesus then commands him to pick up his pallet and walk. And by the way, here's another thing. Pay attention to the details. The pallet, by the way, was the bed of those who were very, very poor. You know what this is telling us? Jesus does not discriminate. You know what this is telling us? That our Jesus cares for all men. You know what this is telling us? Even though nobody really cared for the man. Remember, as I mentioned to you, he was all alone by himself. 
Maybe nobody cared for him. Maybe, maybe he was a bad person. We don't really know. But whatever it is, that was the reason why he was alone. He was not cared for. And you might feel the same thing. Maybe you're thinking, nobody really cares for me. Nobody really minds me. I'd like you to know, brother. I'd like you to know, sister. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. Amen? He loves you. He cares for you. That is Jesus. And that's the wonderful thing about our Savior. And again, just reminding myself of the gospel. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible says he tasted death for each and every man. You know what that means? Even if you were the only person in the whole universe, Christ would still die for you. Think about that long and hard. Jesus was, listen well, Jesus was not dying just for the crowd. Jesus did not just die for, for the numbers. He was not thinking in terms of, well, I need to die on the cross because there are millions of people who will be lost. There will be billions of people who will be lost. No, he was not thinking just in those terms. He was thinking in terms of each and every individual. And that is why I think this is really very powerful to really get into. This causes us to enlarge our understanding of who Jesus is. Makes us appreciate our Savior more. Makes us love Him more, worship Him more. And that is why one of the things that I would like to belabor is, is the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the loving kindness of God, the mercy of God. Because I know that, that when we understand who our God is, we will get encouraged. Just by understanding the attributes of God, we will be comforted. Just by understanding who our God is, we will have hope. And that is why I want to be able to expand on this time and time again every time I come on Sunday. I want you to have a correct vision of God. I want you to have a correct vision of Jesus Christ. Because that is how we get preserved. That is how we get strengthened. That is how we get sustained in our lives. But even as this miracle was performed right in the presence of a multitude of people, remember there were a lot of people there. The Bible says there was a multitude. They saw this miracle. And yet, sadly, there were some people who were offended by the miracle. Isn't that interesting? How many, how many people get offended with miracles? But this is exactly what we see. And you know the reason why? Well, the cause of the offense was the timing. Look at verse 9. This was the, co the cause of the offense, the timing. All right? Let me read to you what verse 9 says. Now it was what? Say it out loud. Now it was when? It was the Sabbath. On that day, 
The problem was from the Jews' standpoint, with Jesus healing and command to pick up the pallet, was that it happened on a Sabbath. That was the problem. They would have had no problems if the healing did not take place on the Sabbath. But of all days that Jesus performed a miracle, it had to be a Sabbath. And because it happened on a Sabbath, they were offended. They were not even thinking about this stupendous miracle. I mean, how many, how many times are you able to see a man immediately standing up from paralysis? How many times does that happen? Maybe even in our own lifetime, we have never experienced that. A lame man starting to walk. And so this is not an ordinary miracle. This was a stupendous, powerful miracle. Only God could have done this miracle. And yet the interesting thing was the focus was not even on the miracle. The focus was not even on the good deed that was done for the sick man who was afflicted for 38 long years. The focus was Jesus did it on the Sabbath. As far as Jesus was concerned, that was not a problem at all. But as far as the Jews were concerned, it was a moral and spiritual issue. And what was it that offended them? I mean, just to amplify this. Look at verses 10 to 13. It says, So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath. And it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was ill did not know because Jesus did not identify himself. And it says here, For Jesus has slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Now again, just to capture what was happening here, the Jews took offense that the healed man was carrying his pallet, which according to their human tradition, say it out loud, human tradition. I want to hear everybody. Human tradition. Which according to their human tradition was a violation of the Sabbath, why? Because carrying one's pallet was considered work according to their human tradition. And the reason why I asked you to repeat that phrase, human tradition, is because this was the very thing, the very impediment that caused them to be spiritually blind. They could not see God in this miracle. They could not see Jesus in this miracle. They could not recognize the Messiah, the Christ, and the Savior. They became blinded. They were blindsided by their own human tradition. Now the question is, was Jesus really violating the Scriptures? Was he really violating the fourth commandment? The answer is no. 
So what was the problem here? The problem was a misinterpretation of the scriptures. And here is where I need to bring back what I shared to you at the introduction. These people, many of these Jews who were complaining belonged to the Pharisees. They were called the experts of the law. They studied the Old Testament. They memorized scriptures. And they were highly esteemed by the people because they were able to expound the Old Testament scriptures. And so they were very proud. In fact, they were very arrogant because of the knowledge that they had of the Old Testament. And they thought they got it right. They thought that with the many human traditions that they had come up with, it was proper interpretation of the Scriptures. But at this point in time, there was now a conflict. There was now a crisis situation in this narrative because Jesus was challenging their interpretation of the fourth commandment. When Jesus was doing this miracle, he was doing many things. He was doing two things at the same time. First, he was showing compassion to this man who had been ill for 38 long years. But at the same time, he wanted to correct these Pharisees, these Jews who had a wrong understanding of the Bible. But they were blind, as I mentioned to you. What was the problem? Again, the heart. And we will expound on that further. So again, just to summarize, carrying furniture on the Sabbath was a kind of work that according to the rabbis, the fourth commandment prohibited, according to them, according to their human tradition. And this man who got healed explains that it was the man who healed him, but he could not identify Jesus because as I mentioned to you, as the Bible tells us, he had slipped away. But he was saying that this man who healed me, he was the one who ordered me to carry my pallet. To which the Jews inquired as to who it is that ordered him to carry the pallet. Again, unmindful of the stupendous miracle that had just taken place. And that is why I believe that I needed to bring at the introduction the Gospel of John chapter 4. Because what we find in the Gospel of John chapter 4 was what? We saw faith. We saw faith, the faith of the Samaritan woman. We saw the faith of the Roman officer. But now, in chapter 5, what do we see? We see unbelief. Do you see the contrast? And by the way, in John chapter 4, verse 48, Jesus made a commentary on the Jews. And this was his commentary. He said, so Jesus said to him, unless you people, and this time when he talks about people, he was referring to the Jews, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. That's Jesus' commentary of the Jews of that time, and maybe it is also a commentary of people of today. 
It says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. That was how Jesus perceived the Jews in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And yet, again, look at the mindset of the Jews. The mindset of the Jews was to see is to believe. Perform a miracle. Perform signs and wonders and we will believe you. Well, here in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, Jesus just performed a very powerful miracle, and yet they were still not believing. So where was the problem? Are we talking about a lack of evidence here? There was no lack of evidence. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, the reason why I'm not believing is because there is a lack of evidence on the part of God. There has never been any lack of evidence. We have in Romans chapter 1, we have the witness of God's creation. The book of Romans chapter 1 declares to us that creation declares the invisible attributes of God. It is impossible to look at creation and say there is no God. It is impossible to think that the world that we are living in is one big, giant, humongous accident. But that's what evolution is teaching. They deny God because of the Big Bang Theory. We just happen to be here. Could you really believe that? If you just study the human anatomy, the functions of, of every part of the human body, you cannot help but conclude there must be a God. The fact that planets are not bumping into each other is a testimony that there must be a God because there is order. And why is it that the earth is not too close to the sun? Otherwise, we'd all be beef kebab. Nobody would survive. The distance is just perfect. If earth was farther away from the sun, we would not survive the cold. And how is it that people can believe that there is no God. Well, I like what one person said. It's because of sin. Sin makes you stupid. That's exactly what it is. Sin makes you stupid. Not only do you have the witness of creation, you have the witness of the conscience. Why do we have a conscience? Why do we have a sense of what is right and what is wrong? Where is that coming from? The Bible declares that we have been created in the image of God. It is that image of God, that remnant image of God that, that gives us a sense of what is right and what is wrong. Lack of evidence? There were thousands of miracles that Jesus performed. John said that if I wrote everything down, you know, it cannot be contained in so many volumes. 
the many miracles that Jesus performed, and then talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beyond question, it is Jesus proving to the entire world and to the Jews that He indeed is the Son of God, that He indeed is the Christ and the Savior. And yet, the sad thing is that people are crying out and saying, there's still not much evidence. And again, this miracle was staring the Jews in their face, and yet they were still not willing to believe Jesus was saying, in effect, you want signs and wonders? Let me do one for you. Here's a man who has been sick for 38 long years. He can't walk. Nobody cares for him. I'm going to perform a miracle. You will see something you've never seen in your lifetime. I'm going to make him walk. And I'm going to make him carry his pallet. And you better believe what's going to happen. And it happened. A powerful sign and wonder. And yet, they still did not see it. All they saw was, oh, this happened in the Sabbath. If this Jesus were really the Christ, the Messiah, how does he perform something in the Sabbath? Now, Jesus said in chapter 4, as we mentioned, that the Jews always wanted signs and wonders to believe. And yet here was an unquestionably powerful miracle, and yet they were still not willing to believe, which tells us that their unbelief was really willful. Which is also true for the rest of mankind. So what am I saying? A lot of people would like to exonerate themselves. And there are some who would like to exonerate people for their ignorance. And they say, why blame people? Why, why is God going to send people to hell? Well, these people are ignorant. They don't know any better. So if they don't know any better, why, why should God put them in hell? Is not unfair and unjust of God? Well, let me tell you this. Inasmuch as a lot of people would like to put a premium on ignorance to make it a lame excuse for rejecting Christ, I'd like you to know this. Ignorance is really a choice. It is a choice that people make because they don't want to believe the truth. Now, you might say, prove it to us. Sure. Ephesians 4, verse 18. What does Ephesians 4, 18 say? It says, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, at this point in time, People might be thinking, there you go, ignorance. But follow through. What does it say? Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of what? The hardness of their heart. So it's not really 
ignorance per se. We're talking about ignorance here that is really the result of the hardness of people's hearts. So there is no excuse. Nobody can claim innocence. Nobody can claim ignorance as an excuse for rejecting Christ. Because the Bible is very clear. If you're ignorant, if you don't know the truth, it's because you have hardened your heart. It's because you refuse to see the evidence presented by God to you. And that is why we will find many people in hell, not because God wants people in hell. The Bible is very clear. He desires all men to be saved. If we're talking about the desired will of God, the desired will of God is for all men to be saved. But you and I know that the Bible says that the road to God's kingdom is a narrow road and only few enter that road. And may I add, it might even be narrower than we think it is. Maybe we're thinking these number of people coming to the Lord, maybe that's not so true. Maybe the road is narrower. The few might actually be even fewer. And why does that happen? It's a choice. It's a choice that people make. Now, one thing I'd like to note here is that although these Jews were unconcerned with this man who had been sick for 38 years, Jesus showed compassion and cared for that man. In contrast, the Jews cared more for religious form than for compassion and obedience. Let me say it again. They were more concerned about religious form than for compassion and obedience. The attention of the rulers was consequently centered on the relief, not on the relief of the man, nor on the power of Jesus, but their focus was in relation to this act to the Mosaic law, which after all was flawed. It was a flawed understanding of the Mosaic law. They were standing on shaky ground. They were standing on sinking sand. That's what it was. But you see, that's, that's the world that we are living in. And the Lord actually warned us through Paul in Timothy when he said that in the last days, people will hold on to a form of godliness, form but they will deny its power. People will hold on to a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. And that's what we see in this world that we are living in. People hold on to a form of godliness. They hold on to a form of religion, but that's all it is. It's just a form. There is no substance. There is no essence. There is no power. There is no real worship. There is no real devotion. People go about doing their thing, getting drunk and 
remaining as addicts and being unfaithful to their spouses, and yet you will find them on churches on Sunday. What is that all about? That was exactly what James attacked in James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Look at what James says here. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You want to talk about true religion? That's true religion. True religion changes your life. True religion changes your character. True religion makes you a better person. For as the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new has come. That's what true religion is all about. That's when you know that you really have this abiding relationship with Christ. This is when you know that you are really a true branch of God abiding in the vine, Jesus Christ himself, because the life of God is in you. It's growing in you. It's coming out of you. It's overflowing. And people see that. They no longer recognize you in the flesh. They look at you and they say, you know what? You're different. You used to be an angry man. Now you're so patient. Oh, you're a different person right now. You used to be perverted. And now you're so, you're so clean. You're no longer the immoral person I used to know. What just happened there? What happened there was the Holy Spirit dwelling inside the body of that person, changing that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's what happened. And that, is, that life is made available to those who are genuinely seeking God. Which unfortunately, the Jews were not. They were not seeking God at all. And sometimes the problem, as we see here in the case of the Jews, is that they had made their religious beliefs and theological systems their own God, such that even when truth is presented succinctly, clearly, plainly, they still will not believe. How many times have we heard that people say, well, this was, you know, what I grew up in. I was born this way, so let me die this way. What if what you believe in is wrong? And, and sometimes, again, we, we think, why is it people are no longer thinking? People just accept things, hook, line, and sinker. For example, you talk about evolution. It's not science. 
Because if you're talking about science, you talk about the law of biogenesis. What does the law of biogenesis say? Like begets like. A cat will produce a cat, a dog will produce a dog. A dog will never produce a cat and vice versa. You see, people are willing to believe that we came from apes. And there is actually no evidence whatsoever. Remember this, evolution remains a theory. And yet, people still believe that lie. Why? Because, you know, it's, it, it's, it's in the books. We've been taught about it all our lives. Ever since we were young, we were told that we came from apes. How many here are willing to admit they came from King Kong? It's really sad. Now, when they were asking who was this that healed this man, the healed man did not have an answer because at that time, Jesus had not yet identified himself. And if there's something you will notice, after this miracle, all of a sudden, Jesus just slipped away from the crowd. Why didn't he linger on? Why didn't he stay and bask in the glory of this powerful miracle? Why did he slip away? Well, there is a reason. He slipped away because Jesus will not be found by people who are not seeking Him. Let me say it again. Jesus will not be found by people who are not seeking Him. Let me share to you a parting verse of Scripture. Hosea chapter 5 and verse 6. Hosea 5 verse 6 reads, They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. Now you might say, well, they're seeking the Lord. Now the context here is the spiritual harlotry of Israel. Remember, they practiced religious syncretism. What do I mean by that? Yes, they were worshiping the God of the Old Testament. They were worshiping Yahweh. But guess what? They were adding other gods to their collection of gods. So Yahweh just happened to be a God, not the God, but just a God. There were many gods that they were worshiping. So this was not really genuine seeking. And here's what happens. Notice what it says here. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. Watch this. But they will not find him. But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. What Jesus just did in this narrative is exactly this. He slipped away. He was not to be found by those who were not seeking him. In conclusion, I'd just like to be able to say the truth is what really sets us free. 
but willful ignorance is what will destroy and damn us. Wrong beliefs will lead us to wrong conclusions and wrong conclusions will bring us to wrong decisions and wrong responses. That was the problem with the Jews. So if our lives are going to be made right, if we are going to be right before God, we've got to get it right. But to get it right, it is important to know that Jesus will only reveal Himself to those whose hearts seek Him. Just like this desperate paralytic. But He will hide Himself, just like the Jews, from those who hardened their hearts, who saw Jesus as a villain, not a hero. Who is Jesus to you this morning? I'm sure because you're here, you see Jesus as your hero, as your Lord, as your Savior, as your Master, as the risen King. Amen? And we thank God that we believe in Christ. But that makes our work cut out for the rest of the world. We are to continue to pray for them. We are to continue to seek the face of our Lord that one day those hardened hearts will eventually become tender. And that they too, like us, would find God. Here's something I'd like to remind all of us by way of putting us back down to the ground. Even as we look at the, a, world, a world that is unbelieving, please recognize the fact that we were once like them. Please recognize the fact that we were not really seeking God. Please be reminded that at a certain time in our lives, our hearts were so hardened that we were not seeing Jesus. But Jesus opened our eyes, and now we see. He opened our ears, and now we hear His words. He opened our hearts, and now we feel Jesus in our hearts. Amen? Amen? So thank God. Thank God. We thank God for His resurrection and that we believe in His resurrection. Let's bow our heads in prayer at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this, this story. And we are saddened by the fact that there are so many people, in fact, millions of people in the world who see you as a villain instead of seeing you as a hero. Instead of seeing you for who you really are, you are the Christ, 
You are the Savior and you are the King. And our prayer, Lord, is that in the same way you opened our eyes, ears, and hearts, you would do the same thing with our friends, with our unsaved loved ones, that they too, like us, would be found worshiping your holy name. Today, we thank you for the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, the cross would be an empty claim. The empty tomb proves, however, that all our sins have been washed away. And though our sins were as scarlet, they are white as snow right now. And Jesus, we thank you. You thank you that you rose from the dead. And because you live, one day we too will live together with you in eternity in heaven. You will safely bring us home. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you that we could give our tithes our grace gifts and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And once again, Lord, would you be so kind to bless and prosper us so that we might be able to continue to bless your work. Whatever has been achieved today, we give you back the glory, the honor, and the praises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please. And and shall